is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, there seems to be no appetite for a ban on pig dogs, but rather the authorities are looking at regulation or a permit system. We'll hear more about uh, that issue shortly. And former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull is making strides to build his own renewable energy projects with hydro slated for the Hunter Valley and beyond. It's early stage, but we've entered into a development agreement with Water New South Wales to um, investigate the construction of pumped hydro at both Glenbourne Dam and Lake St Clair or Glennies Creek Dam. You might have some thoughts about that or the pig dog issue and uh, talk about a permit, not a ban by the authorities, 0467 922 684. That's a number to text me here at the Country Hour. And uh, last week when we were talking about this issue, the uh, text line went into overdrive. So I can imagine that's an issue that's out there that's uh, that gets people pretty riled up. Uh, we'll look at that story first because uh, that document that was tabled in budget estimates, it was represented as a view of the New South Wales Police that the practice of using dogs to hunt pigs should be banned. But we've spoken to Roy Butler, independent MP for Barwon. He's put out a statement to say that is incorrect. Late last week, he made his own inquiries and he confirms that this is not the view of the police about a ban, but many parties involved in the debate are looking to find a solution with a license or a permit system to set standards and then to target those individuals who do the wrong thing in regards to animal welfare or trespass or theft from rural properties, which is the other issue that's been raised as well in regards to this. I spoke to the MP, Roy Butler, about this issue a short time ago. No, I always think a ban is a blunt instrument, you know, and the vast majority of people um, aren't out there, you know, cutting fences or knocking stuff off. And then the vast majority of people also want to see as humane a death as possible for anything that they're hunting. You know, they don't want to have a protracted, painful death. Um, so... I think uh, codifying or giving people, a, you know, a code of practice, uh, a permit system, that sort of thing, and both the New South Wales Police and uh, the association that looks after the uh, hunters and pig doggers, um, both of those groups are supportive of uh, um, codification and, uh, and some, some sort of permit system. So I think that's the common sense place to go. And then the first question the police can ask someone who, uh, you know, is out with dogs on private property is, you know, do you, do you have a permit or a licence to do this? Um, and that could include that. That could include training around uh, biosecurity, um, around uh, humane humane dispatching, all of those sorts of things that cause concern uh, for landholders or for people that uh, you know might be concerned about hunting. Full stop. I think that uh, codification is a good way to go, just to ensure that there's minimum standards of uh, of the way things are done. And you think that this is a way of getting of weeding out the bad apples or those people that uh, uh, may be using. Uh, pig dogs for nefarious purposes, for for uh, stealing things, for uh, threatening people, uh, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, a wild, uh, 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 you know, a pig dog can be a pretty vicious weapon. Yeah, look, they, they can be, uh, they can be, and, and they can also be, you know, big, big, cuddly. Big softy, uh, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, they only really switch on when they're, when they're on, on the truck looking for pigs when they know that they're going out to do that, but... I suppose, Michael, the thing is right now we've got people who do the wrong thing, right? We've got people who go out there and do the wrong thing. And my guess is that even if we put regulation in place, we would still have people that go out there and do the wrong thing. What this does, though, is it allows police to ask first question, do you have a permit? 
and straight away they've got something they can enforce, you know, as opposed to being unclear whether someone's meant to be where they are, whether they have the permission of the landholder, um, all those sorts of things, or if they're on public land, uh, are they meant to be there? These, these are things that cause the police no end of headaches, which is probably what's led to, you know, one or two police officers generating a report saying it's, it's hard to manage, we should stop it. Um, I'd, I'd never support uh, the banning of it, but uh, I do think that when you've got police and you've got industry saying we think that codification is a good thing, um, then that's an opportunity to uh, make sure that those minimum standards are being met, especially around important things like biosecurity and uh, humane dispatching. How do you feel about the way it's been handled by the Animal Justice Party? Oh, look, I think in the upper house you can sort of, um, you, you know, you've, you've got a statewide constituency, but you've got your, your core your core supporters. You get people who get voted into the upper house with a very small number of votes, especially as they run out of quota, you know, less than 2%, which means that in a line-up of 100 people, less than two, two people actually want you there, but um, you can get elected to the upper house for that. And, and I suppose as long as you're appealing to that small group of people, which in the case of the AJP is people who might be um, very, very, very concerned about animal welfare as opposed to uh, people who have a normal level of concern about animal welfare... Um, and it speaks to an audience, you know, I get that. And uh, obviously it's generated media. Um, it's made me have a flurry of phone calls to clarify what's going on. And I guess that uh, that sort of uh, sensational shock um, sort of uh, behaviour, we see it a lot from the upper house, um, where something will come out that's contested. Oh, on both sides, I guess, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they know it's going to generate media. They know it's going to generate um, whether it's anger or anxiety or whatever feeling they're trying to generate, and they'll do that because they know it'll get played and it'll get clicked on. Um, you know, when the article first got pushed out saying that New South Wales Police wanted to ban pig dog hunting, uh, or hunting pigs with dogs, um, that got a whole lot of clicks and a whole lot of people concerned because it's a, it's a pastime or an activity that a lot of people out west uh, either have been involved in in the past or are currently involved in. So no one wants to hear that something's going to be banned um, and it just generates a lot of anxiety and a lot of concern that's uh, unnecessary. And just to clarify, the Rural Crime Unit's position is not a ban. They would like to see... Um, they're, they're, they're willing to uh, get people around the table and talk about some sort of regulation, some sort of permit system. Yeah, and the industry, so the um, Australian Pig Dog Hunting Association, um, uh, that's uh, Ned Makem, he's also very keen to, uh, to see a permit system. So you've got police. because there are bad apples out there, we need to rein them in. Well, no one. I mean, with any cohort, and, and you and I have had plenty of discussions over the years, Michael. But um, uh, when it comes to things like hunting or firearms, it only takes one bad apple to to give the media something to run on, which gives everyone a bad name, right? So, um, people who are serious about uh, whether it's hunting with rifles or hunting with dogs. Uh, they don't want to see people doing the wrong thing because it just drags the whole activity down and gives everyone a bad name. So the less people who are out there doing the wrong thing, the better for everyone else who's doing the right thing. Roy Butler, who's the independent member for Barwon and the head of the Rural Crime Prevention Unit, Cameron Whiteside, posted a message on Facebook saying it has been reported the New South Wales Police Force and specifically the Rural Crime Unit are calling for the banning of using dogs to hunt pigs in New South Wales. He says this is not the view of the police force or the rural crime prevention team. It's coming up to 12 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. 
Let's look at uh, water issues now. Last week, the New South Wales Irrigators Council says it was not satisfied with the state government's alternative to buybacks plan. The plan identified water savings, uh, water saving projects that could potentially help deliver some of the water the federal government needs to meet its 450 gigalitre target by the 2027 deadline. On that issue, here's uh, New South Wales Irrigators Council CEO Claire Miller. So there are several very tangible options in there. Uh, there are water saving projects at West Corrigan Private Irrigation District. Um, there's a couple out near Hay um, with a water district out there and, and a few other bits and bobs. But they've actually been on the table for quite some time, uh, for several years. So it's frustrating that it's taken until now for hopefully some progress to be made on delivering those projects. There's a few others in there that have got great promise, um, such as the Murrumbidgee Irrigation and Collyamberley Murrumbidgee Optimisation Project. These could really be game changers for water recovery and healthier rivers and avoiding buybacks. But then they rely on goodwill from the Commonwealth in redefining how it counts water towards the 450 gigalitre target. We feel here that the, the New South Wales Minister has really tried very, very hard to find what she can that could possibly be finished um, in time for the 2027 deadline. Um, but it really highlights just how difficult this water recovery um, target is going to be to meet in practice. Now, following those concerns being raised about the buybacks and the uh, lack of detail in some of uh, those plans about how we're going to recover that water without buybacks uh, that have been touted by the New South Wales government, I spoke to get a bit more detail from uh, Rose Jackson, the Minister for Water. Well, I mean, at the moment, we're putting ideas out there for discussion that the two key things that we think the New South Wales government can do, obviously, we need our partnership with the Commonwealth to make this work, is really maximise the amount of water that we are recovering towards the 605 gigalitres. And if we are delivering those projects well um, on time, on budget, there is the potential for even greater environmental benefit there. So those are our Sidland projects. Um, they're delivering the 605 gigalitres that the New South Wales government has committed to delivering. One of the key reasons that you know we continued with the Murray-Darling Basin Plan um, and, and our agreement with the Commonwealth is because we think those projects have merit. So, you know, they are a huge piece of work for us. You know, I think that there's a range of other things that we can do for the 450 gigalitre target as well. Um, we're looking at rules changes. We're looking at some of our national park projects. Um, we're looking at things like Mimikaira, which people may be familiar with, you know, expanding that. Um, we're looking at the regulation of the River Murray. Like, there are a range of things we can do on infrastructure and rules-based projects that we think um, have environmental benefit, um, can deliver towards water recovery targets and minimise the impact of community on, on communities. New South Wales Irrigators Council was saying that um, you know some of the projects have been talked about before, the hay project's been talked about before, and that uh, you know it's just a drop in the in the ocean. You know, to pardon the pun, it, it's not enough water, and it's own and it's also too late. How do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're open to other ideas. I mean, the, the point here is we're trying to be proactive in putting suggestions forward. If the irrigators um, have other suggestions, we, we welcome them. 
like the Irrigators Council, like New South Wales Farmers, um, like our independent irrigation organisations, um, if they think that there's other proposals, you know, we are very open to putting them forward. I think the thing that I don't really support is being negative um, and, you know, saying nothing's going to work when, you know, I, I don't think that's true. I'm not giving up on the plan. I'm not giving up on the idea that there are things that can work. I don't think the shoulder's been put to the wheel in New South Wales over the last decade, and that's what we're looking to do. But yet again, uh, Minister Plibersek has been saying that she thinks that uh, buybacks is the only way to get to those tar- targets and that um, she's sceptical about um, water-saving infrastructure projects. I'm not sure she has said that. That's not something she said to me. I, I, I don't think... I remember that. interviewing her and she actually did say that. Yeah. Well, certainly that's not the communication that we're getting from the Commonwealth. She didn't rule it out, but she was sceptical. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's because the work hasn't been done. You know, we've done the Commonwealth's homework for them now. I accept, as I said, that over the last little while, state governments, particularly New South Wales, haven't done the work... I can understand the Commonwealth being sceptical. Over the last little while, there's been a lot of talk and no action. And, you know, the, the, the posture from New South Wales has been walk away from the plan entirely. Well, I think that's a bad outcome for the state. You know, they haven't come out and just said, oh, well, you know, we're just going to do buybacks and where should we do them? That, that's not what we've seen from the Commonwealth. I mean, I, I can't speak for what they'll do down the future. I'd be very disappointed if they did just go down that path. Now, the, you also reduce the amount of water harvesting allowable on the coastal uh, coastal fringes. And uh, I, is it something on the table to maybe reducing uh, harvestable water for floodplain harvesting, re- reducing the licences there to maybe claw back some water there? Look, I mean, uh, not really. I mean, we want to ensure that all water taken in those valleys is within sustainable limits and if it's not then certainly you know we will have to take action against the growth in use and we we have done that um, you know in valleys like Namoy where we have seen too much water allocated so to that extent yeah I mean we will ensure that the water taken in valleys is sustainable um, and is within our legal limits everyone would recognize that that's the position of me and the New South Wales government Um, but beyond that uh, no, I mean, as I said, like that's not so much our plan. We are looking at rules-based changes. We're looking at what we can do. L- like what? Like what? Connectivity, like operational changes to how the Murray, Murrumbidgee and Lower Darling work, like rules-based changes to how water is taken in and out of the Menindee Lakes. We're in active discussions with the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and the other basin states about how Menindee Lakes works. I don't think it's working very well. Um, you know, despite the fact that there's not drought conditions, we're still seeing very poor water quality there. So those would be the types of things that we would look at. You know, when water is drawn on through the Menindee Lakes and through the other lake, uh, other lakes and rivers. What about subsidies for lining of channels or maybe polypiping, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm open to that kind of stuff. Um, or fishways would be another, you know, example um, of the types of things that we could do. I mean, we put those ideas forward. As I said, I mean, I I can't speak for the Commonwealth. Really, you know, we need their engagement on this. But I am open to suggestions, you know, that provide a pathway for, you know, individual landowners or farmers, you know, to minimise their water losses and, you know... Some of the big irrigation companies have floated that idea in the past? 
Yeah, I mean, as I said, we're open to it. As I, that's what I at the beginning, you know, I tried to make clear. If, if people think that there are ideas that they want to put forward that that we haven't put forward, we are open to that. On uh, Friday, we on the text line, we got a text in from a pastoralist who's on the uh, the Darling River, saying that uh, for years they've been putting up with uh, what she says is uh, too much water take up in the northern part of the basin, and that uh, it's her view that. The, uh, the Darling is suffering as a result of that and the flows subsequently down into South Australia. She's, she she wants some of that wound back. Um, wh- how would you respond to a, a grazier like that? Certainly I've met pastoralists and have heard that view. I mean, uh, you know, we are looking at river connectivity to, the first po- to her first point in relation to connectivity and, and potential over-extraction in the north leading down through the marshes and into the Menindee Lakes and into the Southern Basin. So the expert panel on connectivity is charged with that piece of work. They are doing that and I look forward to their, their report. You know, and in terms of the, you know, call on water down into South Australia, well, I already mentioned the conversations that we're having with the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and the other basin states around those rules-based changes. You know, when the Murray-Darling Basin Authority late last year, you know, put a call on water out of the lakes, um, you know, which I didn't think necessarily delivered good outcomes for New South Wales. I was very public, you know, in in questioning that. Um, I was pleased that that ended up not occurring because there was some rainfall, you know, in the Murray um, and Murrumbidgee area that, that prevented that. But no, no, we are absolutely open to those conversations about how we manage extraction. That's the Minister for Water, Rose Jackson. It's 22 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for The World Today, an overhaul of Australia's higher education sector. Could we one day see four out of five Australians with a university degree? Is it a pipe dream and who should pay? And Australia's eSafety Commissioner warns school students are generating explicit deepfake images to bully their peers. So what can schools and parents do to tackle this? The World Today at lunchtime. And on the country hour, we're getting a few texts on this, uh, the buyback issue, also on the uh, pig dog issue as well, and they talk about licensing or permits or bans as well. Uh, on the water issue, someone says all these buybacks and water-saving projects will do nothing to save the Darling and its fish kills. There were floods in the Darling catchment and, and have now stopped suddenly at the Queensland border. So uh, blaming the Queenslanders there for that one, uh, that texter is. Uh, also um, a text from Justine who says uh, that New South Wales government is cowering to irrigate a lobby with their alternative plan. Just remember there are many communities and businesses downstream who've been suffering for decades due to upstream extraction and other other over allocation of licences without anyone turning a hair and taking any notice of the devastating impact. Justine says real water needs to be returned to the river as per the original Murray-Darling Basin plan. Uh, and um, she says we're major food producers and we fully support buybacks and there are plenty of willing sellers, uh, but greed and influence, says Justine, has ruined our rivers. And um, also Rodney from Griffith has texted in asking about on the issue of animal welfare, saying he wonders how they handle flies, mosquitoes, mice and rats around their homes. Surely they wouldn't harm them. Of course, they would uh, uh, let uh, mosquitoes have a drink, says Rodney. So uh, that's his thought about uh, the issue of uh, 
uh, animal cruelty in um, in a practical sense. It's coming up to uh, 25 minutes past 12 on the country hour. Well, Germany is legalising cannabis following in the footsteps of Canada and the Netherlands, which made cannabis legal through cafes in 1976. Germany is the largest CBD market in Europe, and the decision could trigger relaxation of laws in other countries as well. Paul Long is the CEO of the Little Green Pharma Company in WA, which has a big production facility in Denmark near the German border, producing dried flowers, among other products that are used in medicinal cannabis. And David Clawton asked him, what has changed in Germany? Yeah, so late on Friday afternoon, the uh, the German lower house actually voted to um, legalise cannabis. Um, so that was removing rem- what what basically happens is it will remove um, cannabis from the narcotics list from April one. So so not far away, but it it sort of, it represents probably one of the most significant changes we've seen in global cannabis since since probably Canada legalised back in two two thousand eighteen. And the Netherlands did it. Quite quite a long time ago, I remember travelling in in Holland and thinking, "Well, I could just walk into a cafe and, and order some cannabis." Yeah, that's right. I mean, the pathway has been has been a bit of a grey area in in the Netherlands, but certainly there's been access in a recreational setting there for a long time. Um, but yeah, Germany represents Germany. We think now will be the largest medical cannabis market in Europe. There's no doubt about that, and and probably well, it's actually probably the the, the largest federally legal cannabis market, full stop now globally. Obviously, the US is a big market, but it's still federally illegal. And, and obviously, Canada's been, been legalised for cannabis since 2018. So what will it mean for Germans? What will they be able to do that they couldn't do before? Yeah, good question. So basically, they've, um, they've established like a non-for-profit cannabis club. So you'll be able to join a, join a club. Um, and, and together grow cannabis, but we think that'll be relatively relatively limited. Um, there will uh, German uh, residents will also be able to cultivate and a uh, small number of plants at home, um, and possession for personal use quantities will will no longer be an issue for for Germans. But so personal yeah, use for recreation, or are we talking about them making some oil and maybe turning it into a medicinal? No, right. no, for recreation. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's the that's what that's it's, that's that's the big news. But but I guess you know the decision. The big thing is actually the decision to um, remove cannabis from the, from the narcotics list. So so for, for the medical pathway, which is where Little Green Pharma are one of the leaders, it will it'll do a whole heap of things around access. It will really ramp up volume. We think in in, in Germany and things like um, you know, easing of the rules around telehealth services and e scripts and direct delivery to patients and all those things that have kind of slowed the medical pathway down in Germany now will will open up with this change. And what will that mean, do you think, for uh, for your company? I mean, is that going to be a huge boost for, for what you do? Yeah, we certainly hope so. We we think, you know, most of the um, – we've, we've got a small team in, in Berlin, which is giving us feedback, but the industry seems to – take the view there'll be a, a quantum shift in patient demand, mainly because of that ease of access. So access will be far simpler, um, which, which should should sort of drive that demand and um, inside the country. It's, it's already been one of the fastest growing medical cannabis markets in the world, and we think this will, uh, will, will extrapolate that growth significantly this year and beyond. And more broadly for Australian producers or, or growers or, or pharmaceutical companies, do you think this will have an impact? Yeah, there's a number of Australian companies now exporting to Germany. So we were we were one of the first to send product in there many years ago now. But yes, certainly there's a number of 
of producers here in Australia that are selling into that market. So it should be, you know, we think it'll prove to be a positive thing for, for our industry here in Australia as well. And what about regulations in Australia? Um, do you think that that might, I mean, there's a sense, isn't there, that this could change things in Europe, that others might follow there. What about here in Australia? Yeah, look, there certainly is a sense that um, that in Europe this will begin to um, change what's happening over there. In Australia, look, we, we think that um, the medical pathway is working. You know, for us at Little Green Farmer, that's absolutely our focus. Uh, we did we did see in the New Zealand market, I think it might have been last year or the year before, but there was a referendum on this topic to legalise recreational cannabis and, and it got voted uh, voted down 51% to 49 um, So So close. we think... It is very close, very close. So inevitably, I guess what the regulators are really looking at is this product safe? Um, can can a framework be set up to to manage um, how this product would be sold in the market in a recreational sense? What we see in Australia in the medical pathways is is exponential growth. We've probably got four to five percent of Australians now with a medical cannabis script, and the price of the product is basically on par. With, uh, with what you would typically see in the black market. So if you look at some of those pointers in the market, it, it feels, and, and as the, the globe begins to open up and legalise, it does, you know, you can draw a line between a, a time where you think there may be um, some further regulatory change in Australia, but, you know, our focus here is very much in the medical space. Uh, talking about the issue of uh, cannabis being legalised in Germany, that's Paul Long, who's the CEO of the Little Green Pharma Company in WA. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's half past 12. Shortly we'll have some news headlines. We'll look at the weather as well. Um, someone is on the water issue. Helen's texted in saying, what about disallowing people with no land from holding water licences? And uh, also someone's texted in saying the purchase of Cubby Station would fix the buybacks problem, buyback problems. The world has enough cotton and the Australian growers would get a price increase if no cotton was grown on Cubby Station, says a cliff. And um, also uh, a text on the issue of uh, the pig dog issue and the uh, talk about a possible ban as well. And um, uh, someone has uh, texted in, to say, Mark has texted in from Binger to say that his view is that all savage dogs should be licensed and owners should pay a bond. So uh, that's from Mark at Binger and uh, there's a whole range of other texts there about um, the pig dog issue and whether we should have bans or licenses and so uh, we'll try and get to a few of them as well. Some horrific stories people have texted in too as well about um, uh, what some of these dogs have been up to. So I'm not, not sure I'm going to read them out, though. It's uh, 29 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Uh, shortly, as I said, we'll have some weather details. And I gather that heat is going to be the big issue for the next few days or so. We'll find out the latest on that. But right now, in terms of some news headlines, Adam stories here. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. Uh, the big story... Uh well, certainly in Sydney is the arrest of the uh, former police officer for the uh, alleged murders of Luke Davies and Jesse Baird. Um, police say uh, the suspect is still revealing, uh, refusing to reveal where the bodies are and are still appealing for information, uh, anyone with information to come forward. Now, they're currently searching a rural property at Bungonia in the southern Tablelands. And this is a, uh, one of a number of sites uh, that have been searched uh, in the belief that the bodies may be in uh, separate locations. Now, police have also revealed that gunshots were heard at Mr Baird's house on Monday night, and they also allege the suspect bought an angle grinder and weights uh, 
after that. Uh, and Detective, uh, the Deputy Police Commissioner Dave Hudson says finding the two missing men is the top priority. Meanwhile, a 31-year-old man has faced court uh, accused of causing the death of a security guard. Uh, it was after an incident at the Royal Hotel in Sutherland early yesterday morning uh, where the suspect punched a 30-year-old security guard. He's been charged under the uh, coward punch legislation. Uh, that came in a few years ago mm, now. Yep, uh, yep. And that matter goes back to court in April. Uh, the former Gladys, uh, former Premier Gladys Berejiklian uh, is in court. She's begun a... Uh, she hasn't done anything... Well, <laughs> she's challenging a corruption finding right. against her. Nothing she did on the weekend. Uh, the <laughs> former Premier uh, didn't appear in court, but she's uh, engaged uh, Brett Walker, uh, SC, to argue her case. This is following uh, the ICAC finding of uh, corruption against her. Uh, the Nationals leader, David Littleproud, uh, says Barnaby Joyce won't be in federal parliament this week. Uh, Mr Littleproud says he encouraged him to take leave and he says that's what he is doing now. And this, of course, follows the incident uh, on the Canberra Street. Uh, you mentioned the weather before. I think uh, Victoria's got some troubles as well. They've come out of the sort of heat wave going back into it and they've got hundreds of firefighters racing against the clock to uh, contain a major bushfire northwest of uh, Ballarat before that hot weather sets in again. And a bit of good news, the Matildas have arrived back oh, home yeah. after their three. I had to give, put, throw some light on the day. Uh, yeah, the Matildas are uh, in Melbourne, uh, having uh, won their uh, Olympic qualifying tie against Uzbekistan on uh, Wednesday night. And so they're only one game away now from uh, securing a spot in Paris. Uh, and, also, and also having three away goals really helps as yeah. well. <laughs> Sorry, that, uh, yeah, the, um, the qualifier is... Uh, Docklands Wednesday night. They, yep. beat, they they're in Tash Kent on the weekend. Yeah, beat yep. them three 0 Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and all in the second half. So it was a bit yeah. bit of a nail biter in the first half. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although it just goes to show that we don't need Sam Kerr. Maybe. Woo. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you can't rely on one player no, anyway. That's right. This is no, the other thing. No, you know? they have been saying they do have yeah, depth, depth they do. to cover. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah, that's right. And um, the the thirty six year old striker came in and scored a goal as yeah. she said she wanted to do, and that's exactly what she did. So good honour. Yeah, we're on our way. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah. That's right. All right. Thanks for that. Okay. Adam's story will be back at one o'clock. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Juan Park at the bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So all the, all that rain uh, has sort of moved through now, has it? Uh, yes. So we are left with uh, not much rainfall um, across the state. Maybe uh, with uh, a mobile trough that is crossing across the southern and central part of the coast, we may see some increasing cloud uh, across the southern and central part of the coast with uh, some light shower or two developing later in the day and or evening, and maybe possibly extending into the eastern ranges later today uh, into tomorrow. And otherwise, uh, now the west of the divider will be remaining dry, but we'll be seeing increasing heat in the west. We the maximum temperatures in high 30s expected today, uh, then these uh, temperatures will be rising to maybe low 40s over broad areas in the, uh, over the inland areas on by Wednesday. And with that, we may see elevated fire dangers uh, across the south and the west on Wednesday. And the southwestern fire district may see uh, extreme fires 
dangers developing uh, with this increasing heat. Then on Thursday, as a cold front uh, uh, passes to the south of the state, uh, and with that, the heat will be shifting to the eastern district, and with that, um, many parts of the east will see the temperatures rising up to, say, high 30s to close to 40 degrees on Thursday in the east, and with that, uh, some of the, uh, the eastern district, as well as the central inland and southern inland district, may see the high fire dangers as well on Thursday. So certainly, um, with this heat, there may be some uh, uh, heatwave warnings are being issued closer to the date as well. So how long do you think that this um, heatwave will last for? Uh, yes, uh, I, I think uh, this heat uh, will be mainly uh, during the first half of the week uh, up until Thursday. And then by, the, uh, by, say, Friday into Saturday, the heat will be contracting to the northern part of the state. And then uh, on Sunday, we expect a strong cold front brushing east that will be pushing the heat completely out. So uh, at least we will see heat you know, in some part of the state by Saturday, but mainly during Wednesday and Thursday. Okay, and we're looking at sort of high 30s, maybe low, low 40s um, in, um, in the inland. That's right, yes. So uh, especially on Wednesday across the Riverina and the lower western and upper western and the central western slopes and plain, the temperatures can easily reach something like a 40 to 40, say, I mean, 42 or 43 degrees and lower western may potentially see temperatures reaching close to 45 degrees um, but um, that will be the peak over the heat on uh, in the west on wednesday and and before we see uh, somewhat cooler temperatures uh, in the east but although it will be quite heating up uh, so uh, Western Sydney may see some uh, temperatures close to 40 degrees on Thursday, and uh, some parts of the Hunter will also see temperatures e- exceeding 40 degrees as well. Um, but uh, as, as I said, uh, um, the t- heat will be pu- being pushed to the north by Friday because we will be seeing a series of front end trough brushing the south, and that will push the heat. And uh, the, as I said, the heat will be completely pushed by Sunday. Right, okay, and so I would imagine that the um, Rural Fire Service is watching that closely as well in regards to uh, dangers of fires, to bushfires. That's right, yes. As uh, the listeners may know, uh, Victoria has seen fairly mm, bad yeah. fire conditions. and uh, Yeah, that's right, and with this heat uh, increasing, uh, there is a potential that you know our southern inland uh, may see some similar fire danger conditions. So uh, maybe especially on Wednesday and Thursday, uh, where people are encouraged to uh, monitor the fire weather dangers and and uh, keep yourself up to date with either ABC Emergency or uh, have a look at the RFS website. Yes, indeed, that's right. Uh, listen to the ABC and uh, check out the website for the RFS. Um, Joanne, thanks for that. My pleasure. It's 20 minutes to one on the Country Hour. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull is taking steps to build his own renewable energy projects. Mr Turnbull founded Upper Hunter Hydro with his wife Lucy and announced plans today for, to investigate two hydro storage facilities at Glenbourne Dam and Glenys Creek Dam, the National Energy 
a systems operator AEMO warned that energy shortfalls could arise from as early as next year and Mr Turnbull told Amelia Bernasconi about his ambitions for pumped hydro in the Upper Hunter. It's early stage but we've entered into a development agreement with Water New South Wales to um, investigate the construction of pumped hydro at both Glenbourne Dam and Lake St Clair or Glennies Creek Dam. And essentially, in each case, they would involve building uh, on a ridge next to the existing dam a new reservoir, and when uh, and that new reservoir would be in the order of sort of eight million cubic meters. So it's a it's a it's a it's a big dam, I guess, by farm dam standards, but it's you know represents a very small amount of water relative to the site, amount of water in the in the big in the dams and the reservoirs and uh, when electricity is cheap and plentiful say in the middle of a sunny day or the middle of a windy night you'd uh, pump water up to the top of the hill and then when electricity is scarce um, the water runs down the hill through a turbine and generates electricity I mean it's the same pumped hydro has been around a long time it's a it's an old technology although constantly being improved but it's uh, the most efficient way of storing large amounts of, uh, of energy, of electricity, uh, and using a water as a battery, water and, and head. So in each case, the head would be around 400 metres. And these represent great opportunities because they're in an uh, a area where there is uh, transmission is, uh, is, is close, very close in the case of Glenbourne, not so close, close in the case of Glennies Creek. Um, there's a lot of skills in the Hunter that would uh, be relevant to constructing them. And there's a lot of renewable generation being built, you know, particularly wind up in the New England. So I think this is, this is, these are the, this is the right um, uh, system, the right projects in the right place. But there's a long way to go, Amelia. I mean, we've got a lot of work to do to prove it up. We've got to do a lot more geotechnical uh, examination. Um, you know, it's not... Sadly, as I always say, Moore's law does not apply to digging holes. You know, it takes time, and uh, I think with all of these projects, we're all going to we're, we're all going to wish that we started them a decade ago. Mm, I think that's a big thing that we certainly hear, and I'm sure you do as well, around the Upper Hunter. This hesitation of these national conversations saying we need to move away from coal, coal-fired power, but we actually don't have the alternatives just yet. Yeah. I mean, by 2038, we're expecting that the 24, I think it is, coal-fired power stations across the country will all be offline. That's only 15, 14 years away. Are right. you concerned with how, I suppose, the national energy conversation is playing out now that you have been able to step back from politics and look from the outside? Well, look, I, yeah, I, I am, obviously I'm concerned. I want to, want to keep the lights on. I mean, that's why I got cracking on Snowy too. You know, and I did. Um, look, the, the bottom line, Amelia, I think, is that in Australia, we can generate an enormous amount of solar and wind, uh, and we already are. And the fact that solar, uh, particularly rooftop solar, that is uh, hurting the economics of coal-fired generation so much because in the middle of the day, there's so much solar power around that uh, prices become very low, if not negative. Often they're negative. So we're going to be in a... In a renewable energy world, we will be generating abundant electricity at some times of the day, uh, but not at others. And so what that means is you need storage. 
And, you know, people, some people trouble, struggle to get their heads around that. But, you know, think of water. I mean, it doesn't rain all the time. Uh, we store water. We understand that. And so electricity is going to be the same. And, you know, there will be a mixture of batteries for very short-term storage, but for longer-term storage, you can't beat pumped hydro. I mean, the projects we're looking at would store in excess of a 1,000 megawatts, you know, a fair bit in excess of a 1,000 megawatts, to be honest, for, say, 8 to 12 hours. Uh, that's a lot of electricity. That's a hell of a big battery. And uh, that backs up uh, a lot of renewables. So you take the surplus energy, say, in the middle of the day, you pump the water up to the top of the hill, and then, you know, when the sun goes down, uh, you it runs down again. Former Prime Minister and co-founder of Upper Hunter Hydro, Malcolm Turnbull, speaking to speaking to Amelia Berners-Gurney. And you can read more about that story online at the ABC Upper Hunter website and elsewhere on the ABC website as well online. It's a quarter to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Authorities have placed a sudden ban on all fishing along a section of the South Australian southeast coast after a fatal, a fatal abalone disease was found there over the weekend. It's the first time this particular virus, viral ganglioneuritis, or AVG, has been detected in South Australia. The same disease has already been detected in southwestern Victoria in 2021 and again last year, but also in Tasmania. South Australia's Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr Elisa Spark, explained how the disease strikes abalone. So AVG is a viral disease that only affects abalone. So it affects their nervous system and it causes them to become weak and eventually die. And so it's causes really high mortality rates in, in abalone, so up to 90%. So it's a really serious disease um, of, of abalone. How many samples were tested? Do we know how fast spread it is in that reef where it was first found? No, so that's what we're um, looking to undertake moving forward. We haven't been able to get in, in the water so far to do surveillance. We're hoping to be able to, weather permitting, um, get out there tomorrow in order to determine exactly where we have a problem. We may just have a problem at Break Sea Reef or the disease may be more widespread or may be spreading and that's really the, the reason for this control zone. It's to, until we no more and until we know just how widespread this disease may be the control area is in place to stop the potential spread of this really nasty disease through human activity so fishing activity. How many samples of dead or dying or diseased abalone have you been able to collect so far? I understand it was an an abalone diver who first alerted this? That's right so it was uh, first Um, alerted to Persa through an abalone um, fisher and I would really like to commend them for doing the right thing and reporting these suspicious deaths immediately to us and that's really what's enabled us to promptly detect the disease um, and respond appropriately. So um, we only need to get a detection in the samples that were submitted um, to confirm the disease Uh, and so we have testing uh, through 30 samples that were confirmed um, through our our reference confirmatory lab um, in Geelong. And we've never seen this in abalone in South Australia before? 
That's right. We've never detected um, this virus in abalone and we have done surveillance, never been detected in the state before. What signs of the disease should people be looking out for? Look, I think simply it's that uh, abalone uh, are dead and dying and so a dying abalone, they'll come loose really easily. Um, They may have swollen mouth parts or curled feet um, but really it's it's about if they're, they're not attaching well to their substrate. South Australia's Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr Elisa Sparks, speaking with Beck Chave. It's 12 minutes to one on the country hour. Well, let's uh, turn our attention to ports now because Australia's ports, as we know, have gone through a bit of a chaotic period in recent years due to COVID disruptions, war in the Middle East and union disputes at home. But even more change is coming. Global port services are being automated and stevedore companies in Australia are trialling new systems now as we speak, as David Clawton reports. Professor Vin Tai from RMIT in Melbourne specialises in logistics and port operations. He thinks automation will have a big impact on the port workforce, which numbers over 12,000 people directly employed and about 80,000 people who are dependent on the port system. Elsewhere in the world, we have seen a lot of automated container terminals and uh, operational efficiency has been increased. Um, However, in the context of Australia, we have to take into account the union factor. And uh, what does mean is um, the port management and the union have to sit down and, you know, uh, negotiate about that because we do not want a situation where the level of automation will be um, drastically increased within a short period of time. And uh, it would then leave a big gap. Uh, where the employment, the current employment, existing employment will need to be redistributed or re uh, sort of arranged elsewhere because the reskilling, the training to take on uh, new related jobs in the maritime system in the hinterland after, you know, the port will, will take some time. And um, any kinds of, you know, uh, automation plan will need to have a very carefully plan, uh, succession plan for the employment redistribution. Otherwise, it will create some sort of social chaotic uh, situation within the port and then translate it into, you know, the same situation outside the port as well. How many port workers are there? Um, I don't have the exact numbers uh, within the terminals of DB World and Patrick Terminals, uh, but talking about the automation um, uh, level in the country, uh, within Victoria in in, uh, in Melbourne, we have this um, Victorian International Content Terminal, uh, which uh, the, the, which have a very high level of automation. And then in Brisbane, we also have, uh, you know, something similar as well. Uh, but elsewhere in the country, I think the level of employment, uh, the port workers are still um, having a quite significant share in the total. Um, so that's what I'm saying, you know, any sort of automation plan will need to be very carefully planned. Uh, there should be a succession plan for the skill upgrade, uh, retraining, reskill, um, you know, for the future. We're just looking back at a 2011 report on the ports, uh, numbering the, 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 the workers uh, at about 80,000 people. So it is a large number, isn't it? That's right. That's right. And um, I think the efficiency thing 2011 has been increased um, quite significantly. Uh, however, if we refer to some um, recently released report like those by the Productivity Commission as well as some, um, some analysis ranking from other international organizations. I think uh, the conclusion was um, productivity in Australian port in general 
still have some room for improvement. So quite a lot of room for improvement. And uh, if the machine is going to be um, taken place, for example, then either some of those existing people will need to be reskilled and retrained to operate the machine or to do, uh, you know, the um, for the uh, work behind the scene in relation to the machine. Mm. Or and they will need to be uh, transferred to other logistic-related job in supporting of the operation of the terminals. Professor Vin Tai is from RMIT in Melbourne. Let's go to markets. First up, let's go to Bendigo Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Start with the positive for farmers. Sheep numbers doubled to 5,300 head and the market was dearer with gains of $30 to $40 common. Trade and light sheep selling the best. Heavy sheep 93 to a top of $128 with the main heavy mutton categories averaging over 300 cents a kilo today. Then the good trade sheep pushed up to between $67 to $97 for a ballpark average of $3.50 cents to processors, but with some pens pushing towards 4 bucks at times. Plain and lamb yarding of 12,700 head with less polish and weight on offer. Prices overall were just similar to softer than a week ago, with some big-name exporters not operating and most buyers fairly reserved. Export lambs over 30 kilos, 192 to a top of 223 and had some flat spots at 590 to 650 cents. Heavy 26 to 30 kilo lambs, 162 to 189. Heavy trades, 153 to 163. Medium trades, 22 to 24 kilos, 130 to 160. Still a lot of these lambs from 600 to 650 cents. Most decent light lambs, 70 to 120 in mixed results. Ginny Kelly for MLA. Two Corowa sheep and lambs. Good afternoon. Agents penned additional sheep and lambs for a total of 14,300 this week. The quality was very mixed with the regular supplementary fed lambs available. Most regular buyers were present and operating in a firm to deer a market. Medium trade lambs lifted $5, selling from 121 to 146, averaging 620 cents per kilo carcass weight. Heavy trade lambs sold from 138 to 162 to average 649 cents per kilo carcass weight. Heavy and extra heavy export types sold from 175 to 206. Restockers paid from 38 to 129 for lambs back to the paddock. Heavy merino hoggets gained $38, 122 to 128, and crossbreds up to $130. Strong competition across the mutton run drove prices up. Heavy merino ewes gaining $33, selling from 108 to 137, and heavy crossbreds up to $127. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Two Dubbo sheep and lambs. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers declined to 12,100. The quality improved with fewer light lambs and more consistency through the trade weights. There was also more heavy lambs. The market is selling to dearer trends. Light two-score processing lambs are gaining in demand and lifted $9 and selling from 55 to 118. Trade lambs 20 to 24 kilos are 3 to 5 better, 118 to 157 and averaging around 600 cents. The 24 to 26, 147 to 180, extra heavies have reached 217. Hoggets are $12 better, with heavy weights ranging between 110 and 131. The balance of the lambs and 9,500 sheep are still to be sold. And this has been Graham Richard. Let's go to Wagga Cattle now. 
Good afternoon. Wagga saw a rise in prices with 4,220 cattle offered. Quality of the stock also showed improvement compared to last week, providing feedlots and restockers with a good selection of well-bred weaners and yearlings. Heavy, ca- heavy export cattle were well supplied. An increase by 10 cents with bullocks selling from 285 to 310. Heavy feeder steers were up by 5 to 10 cents, while heavy heifers saw an increase topping at 290 medium weight feeder steers sold at similar trends ranging from 290 to 350 while lighter weights were up by 10 cents making from $3 to 390 feeder heifers experienced a jump of 30 cents selling at 290 to 325 trade heifers were all only a few so far, selling at two ninety to three ten. Heavy cows gained ten cents, selling from two forty five to two sixty five. While the lighter weight cows range from two ten to two forty. There's been plenty of interest from restockers, with the lighter weight selling at three dollars to four thirty two. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Let's go to Forbes cattle now. Numbers lifted this sale with agents yarding 780 head. Quality was fair with some good lines to finish cattle on offer along with the planer types. Most of the usual bars are present competing in a stronger market. Yearling steers to processors lifted 10 to 15 cents to sell from 3.10 to 3.30. Middleweights to feed were back 4 to 10 cents, receiving from 3.15 to 3.60, while heavyweights lifted 5 to 7 to range from 300 to 3.61. The heifer portion to processors was also 10 cents better, ranging in price from 2.55 to 3.13, while those to feed sold from 2.70 to 2.96. Heavy steers and bullocks jumped 15 to 20 cents to sell from 283 to 330. Grown heifers reached 270 cents. Cows were 6 to 8 cents better with heavy 2 score from 215 to 238. 3 score from 237 to 256. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And let's go to Tamworth cattle now. Good afternoon. The influence of restocker and feedlot interest from north of the border was obvious in a reduced penning of 1,540 head. Quality and condition was fair to good through all classes. All regular buyers were in attendance for a market with very few holes in it. Quality was the driver in most price change. Lightweight restocker steers reached 428 cents a kilo, selling to a slightly dearer trend. Medium and heavyweights were firm to a shade dearer, 275 to 400 and 320 to 364 cents respectively. Feeders over 480 kilos reached 359 cents. Medium and heavyweight yearling heifers to feed sold a deer trends 10 to 12 cents, 270 to 325, three score trade to 320. Slightly dearer trends for the heavy ground steers to process 275 to 308. Improvement also in the well finished ground heifers, they topped at 289 cents to process and 316 to feed. Deer trends in the cow market, strong gains on a good quality lineup of Returning to the paddock, they reached 249 cents. Heavy three and four scores, 230 to 275 cents, were up to 16 cents dearer. James Armitage for MLA in Tamworth. And that's the market information for today. And before we go, the last word uh, goes to uh, John, who's texted in from Rankin Springs, saying that uh, uh, people are ignorant about uh, pig dogs uh, being savage. She said, most dogs are very happy, wouldn't hurt a fly unless they're trained. Uh, to do so. Uh, Generally, they're uh, not trained to kill, says John. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour, and it's uh, heading up to news time at one o'clock.